I'm going to be reading Judges 13, the whole thing. And again, and again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, there's a certain man from Zorah of the family of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was a barren and had no children. to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren, and you have borne no children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Now therefore, please be careful, do not drink wine or similar drink, and do not eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite of God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines." So the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his countenance was like the countenance of an angel of God, very awesome. But I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. And he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite of God from the womb of the day of, to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let, let the man of God whom you sent come to us again and teach us what we shall do for this child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of the Lord and the angel of God came to the woman again as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. Then the woman ran in haste and told her husband and said to him, Look, the man who came to me the other day has just now appeared to me. So Manoah arose and followed his wife. When he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man of God who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. Manoah said, Now let your words come to pass. What will be the, holy, what will be the boy's rule of life and his work? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor may she drink wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you, and we will prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your food. But if you offer a burnt offering, you must offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know he was the angel of the Lord. Then Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name, that when your words come to pass we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing it is so wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it upon the rock to the Lord. And he did a wondrous thing while Manoah and his wife looked on. And it happened as the flame went up toward heaven from the altar. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. When the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife, then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, 
We shall surely die because we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have told us such things as these at this time. So the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to move upon him at Manna Dan between Zorah and Eshtel. You may be seated. Before we dive into the study here in the life of Samson, I'm going to ask if you would to join me. Let's go to the Lord and ask his favor and blessing upon his word this morning, okay? God, we're depending upon you to reveal yourself this morning. And we ask that you would make yourself known through your preached word. I ask, Lord, that you would speak, that you would help us all to listen attentively to what your spirit has to teach us, that we might receive your truth. Lord, the day and age we live in, it's so very important that we have your truth in us. And so, Lord, this morning is an opportunity for us to look to your word of truth, to take it in, to receive it, and then to be a doer of this word that we hear this morning. God, you've called us to be holy, for you are holy. You've set us apart to live for your glory and honor all of our days. And Father, I ask this morning that you would show us from your word through the life of Samson, what it is to live holy, acceptable, and pleasing lives. And remind us today that it's only through your strength where we're made strong. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us for your work, that we would be about your work, a people about your work in these days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. came across a, a quote, it's been uh, probably three or four weeks ago now, where I came across it, and it's been sort of simmering and brewing over the last few weeks. And it says this, our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. I'll read that again. I, I, I think there's a lot of... Uh, benefit and value to, to considering uh, what this is saying. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. What a tragedy to know that you've reached the end of your life and you've been chasing the wrong dream. You've been chasing the wrong objective. What a tragedy to come to the end and realize that what you thought was worth your time and energy, it really was nothing more than a house of cards. It just fell apart. Succeeding at things in life that don't really matter. That stuck with me over these last couple of weeks. How tragic it is to be filled with trivia and facts and be absent of the Spirit of Christ. How tragic to have accumulated knowledge and, and chased 
the pleasures of this life while forfeiting the abundant spiritual riches available to you in Jesus. How tragic to get to the end and have this sinking feeling that you only used a fraction of what the Lord gave you. I'd like you, if you're taking notes or writing things down, you can write a vertical line on your piece of paper or your notebook. And on that vertical line, the top of that, you can just label a 100% and the bottom of that line a 0%. And I'd like you to think for a moment of how you've stewarded the life that God has given you up to today. I'd like you to designate on that continuum where you're at as a representative of Christ. I'd like you to put an X on that continuum, that vertical line that defines your stewardship of heavenly things. You see, because God has blessed you with all the riches of heaven. That's Ephesians chapter 1. What percentage of return are you giving to God right now in your life? What's that look like? Go ahead and write it down. Jot it down. On that continuum, what's it look like for you right now as a follower of Christ, as a representative, an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ? How have you steward, stewarded your life for God's glory? Now, as you make that X, what, what next you can do is, is bracket in the difference. In other words, uh, the gap that's there, wherever you put your X on that line, there's going to be a gap, isn't there? There's going, to be, there's going to be something there that, that you see or you recognize in your own life. I just, I, just, I just know in my own life, I know where I have, uh, as we'll talk about today, I know where I have I've, I've derailed myself, I've gone off, I've done some things. I've not walked with the Lord as I should have in this area of my life, etc., etc., etc. We can make a list. But a question that we need to ask ourselves here is what... What can be done about this gap that currently exists, that we recognize exists in our life? And why, listen, why with God having given to you the greatest gift imaginable in His Son Jesus, why would we be negligent with such a stewardship of giving God glory with our lives? We enter into the picture Samson, the warrior, the fighter, man used by God to begin, key word, to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Samson was a, according to the Bible, a 20-year judge. In our terminology today, that would be equivalent to a president who runs for five terms. Samson. You picture Samson, a five-year president? Twenty years. That's what the Bible says. The life of Samson comes complete with childhood images. I know growing up... And some of you as well, maybe you grew up and you were taught uh, some of these stories about Samson. And typically we found out two things about Samson growing up. And this is what I learned. Maybe you learned these as well. I learned about Samson 
and his strength. Anybody else learn about that? How strong he was? I also learned about Samson's long hair. Right? As a child, I just remember the story about Samson's long hair. And I remember the talk about how strong he was. And the childhood images and lessons on Samson, they typically leave out his idolatry and his addictions, his waywardness, his sinful patterns, his anger issues. You typically don't hear about his marital unfaithfulness or his disregard for parental instruction or his playing with fire, which is essentially not taking seriously the dangers of sin. We don't hear a whole lot about that in the life of Samson growing up. Samson's life is tragic in so many ways. He was given a tremendous amount by God. Brothers and sisters, God has given you a tremendous amount. It's one of the reasons I wanted you to think about on that continuum. How are you stewarding what God has given to you? Because he's given to you much. In fact, that's the principle in scripture, isn't it? To whom much is given, much is expected. We're to steward what God gives to us. Samson was given much, was he not? And yet what we see in the pages of Samson's life are a lot of missed opportunities. Anyone ever missed an opportunity in here? Anybody? Okay, good. We're on the same page, at least at some level, with Samson. And what you're going to see as you read the life of Samson is that you are a lot like Samson. I'm a lot like Samson in a whole lot of ways. We need to remember something. The life of Samson, if you notice in the, in the book of Judges, it covers 13, 14, 15, and 16. That's almost 20% of the entire book of Judges. So what's that mean? I think God wants us to learn something from this man, Samson. I don't think his, his life is, is some irrelevant, just push to the side kind of thing. Yeah, Samson, I know about him. No. When you read the book of Judges, Samson's life is a highlight. God is, is shining a highlighter on the life of Samson. And a lot of us tend to go, oh, what a, what a, it's a head scratcher. You read his life and it's like, oh. But God has placed him in the pages of Scripture for us to be able to learn what to do, perhaps more of what not to do. A lot of missed opportunities, a large gap. You know, if if we take that vertical line, Samson perhaps has a, a large gap there. On the, on the continuum. A, a life that in some regards is wasted. In some regards, because it wasn't totally wasted. It, was, it, was, it did end up for God's glory, for God's good. God does work all things together for good. Praise God, he does that even in the midst of our sin. But it was definitely a life that was not fully used a life that had been given ample supply of God's gracious blessings and yet forfeited or at best profaned, treated with minimal concern. I think of Samson's life and I think about a lot of potential, potential 
You know, we hear that word today. So-and-so's got a lot of potential. How many people waste the potential that God's planted in them? I think of waste. I think of a life that could have been lived differently and brought God even more glory. Here's what else I think of when I think of Samson. I think of my own life and how I'm a lot like Samson in some ways. When we come to the the account of Samson, it's important that we don't just get out the boxing gloves and start punching away at Samson and pointing out all of his flaws because he's here for a reason. It's almost as though Samson's life is a mirror for us. And perhaps, perhaps more so for men here. There's a lot of things in Samson's life, men, in particular that we can learn from, go to school on, learn from. Given so much, Samson's life, in many ways, is a tragedy. In fact, that's subtitled the message, The Tragedy of a Set-Apart Life Set Aside. The tragedy of a set-apart life set aside. How is it that one can be set apart to God and yet for a large percentage of years, go back to that vertical line again as we think back on our life, for a large percentage of his years set aside his set-apartness. Do you know anything about setting aside your set-apartness? I think what we're going to find today is that as we look at Samson's life, we're going to be able to also look at our own life. You see, because this not only tells Samson's story, this tells our story. It shows how we fit into God's story. So the objective this morning, I want to give you three words. Three words. I'm hoping that this morning, all of you, We'll be able to remember three words as you leave here and be able to elaborate on these three words as you think about this message in Judges 13 through 16. Obviously, we're not going verse by verse with four chapters. Another overview, okay? Three words, though, I think are going to be helpful for us. Walk through the life of Samson. Three words that are going to minister, I believe, to each of us because I do believe that the life of Samson impacts us uh, at close quarters, his, his life is, is a bit familiar. His, his ways, as we read, they look eerily similar to some of our ways. His sinful habits might touch a sensitive nerve in you this morning as you read this. Three words to tell his story and our story. Three words that I believe are going to open up the conversation on the set-apart life. Three words that help us see the tragedy of a set-apart life set aside. Three words. So, here's the first one. Hopefully you can read my handwriting. The first word is definition. Definition. Okay? These are all going to start with a D. I didn't 
take hours to figure that out. It just happened to be D's that came to my attention. So, uh, but it also helps you to be able to remember the three words. Okay? Definition. Definition. What do I mean by definition? Well, it's asking the question, what is a set-apart life? What is a set-apart life? Defining the terms help us understand what we're talking about. And primarily what we're talking about here when we talk about definition in Samson's life is chapter 13. Chapter 13. Judges chapter 13. Because Judges chapter 13 will give us a good definition of this set-apart life that Samson was called to. So as you read Samson's story, what is it that defines his set-apart life? Now, it's important we understand in the context just prior to 13 and in the first few verses of 13, we see Abdon, who was the previous judge, Abdon dies. He ruled for eight years, and while it's not spoken, we presume because of the cycle we now know, right, Judges, we know this cycle that abounds in the book of Judges. At the end of the, the time period of that judge, during that time, there's peace. After that judge dies, what happens, church? People did evil in the sight of the Lord. Okay? The children of evil. And by the way, you can look at chapter 13, verse 1, and it tells you that very thing. Again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Another cycle is about to begin, isn't it? We see also in verse 1 that the Lord delivers them over this time into the hands of the Philistines. We know the Philistines. A lot of us know the Philistines connected with David, don't we? David and Goliath. Yeah, a champion from Gath. Well, we're not quite there yet in the history timeline. But we're getting there. Okay? Now here, for a period, listen to this. For a period of 40 years, God hands them over to the Philistines. Forty years. Remember, with Gideon, it was the Midianites for how long? Seven years. This time it's the Philistines for 40. So in the midst of that, what we see here in chapter 13 is that um, we get introduced to a man of the tribe of Dan. His name is Manoah. His wife's name is Manoah's wife. How'd you like that, women? That's, it, that's her name. That's all we know in the scripture. Doesn't tell us anymore. Sorry. Manoah's wife. An angel of the Lord shows up to announce to Manoah's wife, who happened to be barren at the time, not able to have children. An angel of the Lord shows up, tells her that she is going to conceive a son. Can you imagine the joy of Manoah's wife? But that's not all the angel of the Lord tells her. After that initial wave of excitement that I'm sure she had, I'm sure that Manoah's wife was listening very intently, and she came to understand that this was not going to be any ordinary child. In fact, I was, I was talking, I think, to my wife this past week, and I was, the thought occurred to me how many people came to my attention just uh, in terms of those who were barren, right? Sarah, uh, Rachel, uh, Elizabeth, Manoah's wife, right? Hannah. 
And then I was thinking about the people who came about as a result of these encounters. Isaac, you had Joseph, you had Samson here, you've got John the Baptist, you've got Samuel. No ordinary folks in Scripture. See, God shows up to a barren woman and tells her that she's going to have a child. But this child is not going to be any ordinary child. There's some key pieces of information as we think about the definition. As we think about what is it that makes up Samson's set-apart life. How do we define this? How do we think through this? What was the set-apart life for Samson? Well, there's two verses in chapter 13 that I want to bring your attention. In the words from the angel in verse 5 to Manoah's wife. Behold, you shall conceive, bear a son. No razor shall become, come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. Look at verse 7. He's, now she's telling her husband what the man of God said. And he said, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. Now drink no wine or similar drink, nor eat anything unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God. There's a little more detail here. A Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Birth to death. That's how long Samson is supposed to be set apart to God. Think about that one for a moment. And while you're thinking about it, it's important as we think about this Nazarite, he's going to be, he's going to be a Nazarite to God. And as you're reading your Bible, you might wonder, what is a Nazarite vow? What's the significance of that? Well, the Bible actually tells us and defines for us a Nazarite vow. If you flip over in your Bible, you can see it. It's in Numbers chapter 6. I just want to read a few of the verses. I'm not going to read the entirety of the chapter. I want to help give you definition for what this set-apart life was for Samson. Beginning in verse 2, the Lord speaking to Moses, Speak to the children of Israel, say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite. There it is. This, this applies to a man or a woman who is wanting to take a vow, uh, make a promise of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord. There it is. To separate himself to the Lord. There was going to be a period of time in the person's life where they were going to separate themselves as unto the Lord. There was going to be a start date and there was going to be a finish date. That was typically how the Nazarite vow worked. But let's remember, Samson's life, according to the angel of the Lord, as he's communicating to Manoah's wife, this son of yours is going to, from the womb, all the way to the day of his death, be set apart unto God. Now look, verse 3. He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. Neither shall he drink from any grape juice or any fresh grapes or raisins. Look at verse 4. All the days of his separation... We're defining the terms of this Nazarite vow, which this is what Samson was set apart to. We're defining it from the scripture. He shall eat nothing that's produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. Verse 5, all the days of his vow, which for Samson would be from when he was born to when he died. Right? All the days of his vow, of his separation, no razor shall come upon his head. Until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord, he shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of his hair of his head grow. 
verse 6, all the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. Mark that one. That's going to come into play in the life of Samson. Verse 7, he shall not make himself unclean. Verse 8, all the days of his separation shall be holy to the Lord. Holy to the Lord. So, set-apart life has been defined for the life of Samson. If we could just pare all of what we read down, I'd give you three bullet points. Samson was not to drink wine or eat anything belonging to the grape family. Raisins? Eh, sorry. Couldn't do it. Don't drink wine. Don't eat anything related to the grape family. Second rule, don't go near a dead body. It's unclean. As you might remember his little journey and venture after he had destroyed the lion. Remember that? And he sees what's hiding out inside the carcass of the lion. Unclean. By definition, I'm just pointing it out here. The third, the third thing, we can grasp and just compile these. Don't get your hair cut. That was the symbol of the set-apart life for Samson and those who took a vow of Nazarite. Here's the bottom line, though, of those three things. The bottom line is this. And it's not a don't do. It's a be. Be holy. Be holy as unto the Lord. That's the bottom line. We're talking about definition. We're talking about what is it to define. How do we define the set-apart life for Samson? Be holy. Now, when you know the definitions of what makes up Samson's set-apart life, you read Judges 14, 15, and 16 differently. You mark the times that Samson encounters a touch point with one of these definitions. Samson's parents were instructed before he was born. And it seems evident from the text that Samson knew the definitions of this set-apart life as well. You might remember in Judges 16, he's able to tell Delilah exactly the secret of his strength. Remember that? He knows what it is. Essentially, he's telling her one of the essentials to his Nazarite vow. What separates his life unto the Lord? He knew his hair wasn't supposed to be cut off. His hair was an outward symbol of one who was taking this vow to walk with the Lord, to be set apart. Sort of like I wear a ring, and the ring is an outward symbol of my marriage to my wife. It reminds me as I look at my ring, I am married. Nothing magical in and of itself of the ring, but it's symbolic, isn't it? It's an outward symbol that reminds me, sort of like Samson's hair, it was this outward symbol that was a reminder to him that he was set apart unto God. So the angel of the Lord comes, blesses Manoah's family with a son, and this son is going to be set apart to God from the womb until the day of his death. From birth to death, Samson's life is set apart to God. Now let's ask the question, what about us? What about us? We got this word here, right? Definition. Definition. That's the word we're looking at here. Is there anything in the scriptures that point 
to the set-apart life applying to us. Can you think of anything off the top? I'm hoping wheels are spinning about right now. Any evidence that our lives are to have some aspect of this set-apartness? Here's what I want you to see. Samson's set-apartness begins at birth. Our set-apartness begins at what we might call the new birth. Samson's set-apartness came with a promise, this vow of the Nazarite. Ours comes with the promised Holy Spirit who resides within us forever. Samson's set-apartness is defined with a set of prohibitions. In other words, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. Our lives are defined by freedom. And what I mean by that is really what the Bible says in Jesus himself in chapter 10 of John, verse 9. Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, listen to the freedom here. If anyone enters by me, comes in through Christ, he will be saved. Wonderful news. But then it says, and will go in and out and find pasture. Go in and out and find pasture. Wonderful freedom. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Don't return there. You see, the set-apartness that characterizes our lives as followers of Jesus Christ himself, it, it's that set-apartness in Christ Jesus. It's a connectedness to the Father through the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. This, the set-apartness for us is defined by, listen, it's defined by relationship. Relationship. An abiding One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Christ himself walked. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk as Christ walked. How did Christ walk? He walked in the light. His Father is light. And the Son walked in that light. Those who are set apart unto God are deemed children of light in the Bible, aren't they? Children of light are to walk in the light and not in darkness. So the bottom line for Samson is really the same for us. And this ought to be clearly pointed out. We said that the bottom line for Samson, when we boiled it all down, we said it wasn't a don't do this, but it was a positive. It was be holy. Friends, that's the bottom line for us. 1 Peter chapter 1, 15 and 16 says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Not in just part of it. Not just when you show up into the Lord's house on Sunday morning. All your conduct, be holy. Because it's written, be holy for I am holy, says the Lord. You know what that word holy means? In essence, definition, set aside, set apart. Set apart. We're set apart unto the Lord. So this first word that tells Samson's story and our story. Is definition. What is the set apart life? There's some differences that exist between the days of the judges and our days, no doubt about it. But the bottom line is the same. Be holy unto the Lord. God sets us apart that we might be holy. 
Not primarily happy, but holy. Is there a holiness about us that resonates Christ in us? Are we quick to pursue holiness with our lives? Listen, God has called us to holy living, set apart for Him, for His glory, and for His honor. Let me give you a second word. We've got the first word. Here's the second word that I want to give you. Not only definition, but derailment. Derailment. When I think of derailment, I think about a train hopping off the tracks. You know, the tracks are laid out in a certain way. The train's supposed to go that way. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if the train just had a mind of its own and decided, I'm just, I don't like this track. I'm going to go find a different track. That wouldn't work too well, would it? But yet, how often in our own lives, as we'll see, we do that very thing. See, God has set before us a particular course. We're going to get to that in Hebrews 12 in a few weeks. A race marked out for us. We're to run a race with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's marked out a path for us. And yet, I think we would all be able to nod our head in agreement and say, you know what, there are times in my life when I have been derailed, or maybe even this morning as I'm talking to you, you find your life right now is, is the second word. There's a derailment that's happening as we speak. Derailment. Definition, derailment. And the question I'd like to ask here with derailment is, how does this set-apart life get set aside? How, how do we arrive at, at setting aside what God has so graciously given to us? We've been called to this set-apart life. And how is it we get to where we find ourselves off in a ditch somewhere far from God? And really, Judges 14, 15, and 16 uh, give us answers to uh, that question. And for Samson, as we think about Samson and his derailment, I, I think it's easy for us. Don't you, don't you agree? It's easy when we come to the life of Samson to be able to give all kinds of definition to his derailment. Oh, yeah, look what he did. Look what he did. Look what he did. You know what? Listen, we are masters at being able to point out other people's faults. We're pretty good at that. We can spot it a long ways away. We can identify it. The thing perhaps we're not so good at, or perhaps we don't want to be so good at, is identifying our own derailment. Again, we're reading about Samson. God's put this in here for our learning, too. Let's, let's be mindful of that. If I was to answer from the life of Samson how he gets from point A to point B and thinking about derailment, it's really one simple word I'd start with. It's sin, S-I-N, sin. That's the short answer. But I'd like to give you three other words that define the derailment in his life. I was reading an interesting book this week and, 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 and really... The three things he pulls out are three things I want to share because they were helpful for me as I'm learning about the life of Samson. And they're right on target. The first word is lust. Lust. To put definition to that, lust is I want it. I want it. Second word is entitlement. I deserve it. Give me that woman. 
Well, are you sure, Samson? Because, you know, she's not one of our people. And don't you think that you probably should be marrying someone who was... I, I want her. Get her for me. Entitlement. Lust, entitlement. What's the third one? Pride. Pride. I, I can handle it. I want it. I deserve it. I can handle it. I'm telling you, when we read the life of Samson, that's the three word derailment. Judges 14, 15, and 16. We see three recorded encounters with women. Samson is ensnared by women. I can't preach Samson and leave this out, church. And men, this is important for you to hear. Women, this is important for you to hear. Let's remember something. The women that Samson got himself involved with were not the most godly women in all of Scripture. Amen? They weren't. We read Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, and you get a glimpse of the damage that's done through lust. Samson's ensnared by women. He gets caught in their trap. First in chapter 14, the woman of Timnah, who is a daughter of the Philistines. Then at the beginning of 16, you see he's traveling to Gaza, goes into the house of a prostitute. A few verses later in chapter 16, Samson falls in love. He's love struck. I don't think Samson knows what love is. And nor do I think any of the women he got involved with knew what love is. Love is not lust. It's not meeting my own desires. And yet we see Samson, like Solomon, like David... They all were bitten by lusting after women. Seems that Gideon was ensnared by this as well. The Bible says he took many wives. Derailment happens in Samson's life as he attaches himself to other things than God. Remember, he has a set-apart life from the womb to his death. Remember, you are set apart. If you are here today and you're in Christ Jesus, you are set apart. And there are certain things, as we think about defining what we're to be about, be holy. Why? Because God says He's holy and He wants us to be holy like He is. If we're going to be holy, we cannot, we must not, go down these other paths of lust, entitlement, and pride. For to do so will be to go back to the life of Samson and see a life that is derailed. 
It's a path we ought not go. His set-apart life has been defined, and, and yet a quick skim through Judges 14, 15, and 16 helps us see that lust, entitlement, and pride, they take the train off the track. The set-apart life seems to lose then its set-apartness. It sounds a lot like salt losing its saltiness. When salt loses its saltiness, it's not worth a whole lot, is it? There's a wedding party in in Judges 14. Again, a, a quick skim through some of these. A wedding party. In verse 10 of chapter 14, his father goes down to the woman. This is the woman from the Philistines. Samson gave a feast there for young men used to do so. A feast. Sounds like a great celebration. A wedding party. The problem is a feast. The word feast, in the Hebrew language, the word has in mind a, a drinking party. What's wrong with that? Do we remember the definitions? Do we remember what Samson's life is set apart for? Do we remember what he's not supposed to be doing? What he's not supposed to be surrounding himself with? They were drinking and making merry. Wonderful celebration. At least marriage is intended to be that. We see also Samson as he's, I don't know, courting, finding out more about this woman. He's on the way down there and this lion comes out of nowhere and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him in power. The Spirit of the Lord, that phrase comes uh, four different times here in Judges 13 through 16. And every time you read the Spirit of the Lord coming upon Samson mightily in power, there's someone who's going to be in the path of some destruction. In this case, it's a lion. Lion jumps out, thinks he's got a free meal. Wrong. Um, Samson, empowered by the Lord. Let's lose the picture of Samson, this guy who works out 20 out of his 24 hours a day. That's not the Samson I read in the scripture. That's the picture, one of those childhood pictures. I don't believe that's the picture here. Because Samson's strength is not in how much he worked himself out. Samson's strength is found in the spirit of the Lord coming upon him in great power. So, lion comes. We got a dead animal. He comes back a little later and he takes, verse 8, he turns aside to see the carcass of the lion. You know, in many ways, Samson's life is characterized by this turning aside. A swarm of bees and honey were in the carcass and he took some of it in his hands and he went along eating it. There's unclean. A little bit later in chapter 15, remember he's hiding out and the men of Judah come down and they want to know what he's doing. And he says, they're telling him, don't you know that the Philistines rule over us, Samson? And I was thinking there for the moment that They don't recognize Samson as their leader. Surely they don't. This is sort of an odd leader, an odd judge in the period of the judges. I mean, they're accepting the idea that the Philistines rule over them. Here's Samson. And there seems to be no indicator from the text in this moment that Samson's the one going to lead them. 
out of the deliverance of the hand of the Philistine. Well, what happens? They tie him up with these new ropes that's supposed to help. And the Philistines come charging at him, verse 14 of chapter 15. And then the Spirit of the Lord, there it is again, comes mightily upon him. The ropes were on his arms, become like flax, burned with fire, bonds broke loose. And what's he find? A fresh jawbone of a donkey. A fresh jawbone of a donkey. Uh, dead recently? Fresh. It's fresh. Is he supposed to pick it up? Is he supposed to handle it? Is he supposed to touch it? No. You remember the riddle that he posed to the 30 guests at his wedding party? He ends up losing. And, and you know, I applaud Samson that he made good on his promise. If you win, if you get the, the riddle right, I'll give you 30 sets of clothing. He came through with it. Problem was, he killed 30 people and took their clothes in order to make good on it. Dead bodies. Let's not miss that. Let's not skim over that. I was also looking, again, we're, we're looking at derailment. His life derailed. Uh, let's go to the end of 15. After he has killed a thousand with this donkey bone, tosses it aside, he's thirsty. He cries out to the Lord. There's an asterisk. There's a plus. He's crying out to the Lord. You've given this great deliverance by the hand of your servant. I want you to underline and mark servant. By the hand of your servant. Now shall I die of thirst and fall into the hand of the uncircumcised. God provides water for him there. He judges Israel for 20 years. Verse 20. And then you get to 16 verse 1. Samson went to Gaza, saw a harlot there, and went into her. We're, we're only three verses removed from Samson saying, Your servant, he's defining himself as God's servant, and three verses later, he's in with a prostitute. Something's not right. That's derailment. And sometimes the derailment might not outwardly manifest itself. It might be more of an inward derailment that's going on, that's visible to no one. But listen, listen to this very, very carefully. Servants of the Lord Jesus Christ do not, do not spend time and hang out with harlots. A little later in chapter 16, we're talking about derailment. And this little back and forth with Delilah and Samson kind of just makes you cringe. It's like, Samson, get out! Leave! Flee youthful lust, Samson! Go! He doesn't. He stays. He's playing the game. Because you see those three things we talked about earlier? that tie into the derailment of Samson. Lust, entitlement, pride. I can handle it. I can handle it. I can handle it. I got this one. Sort of like taunting the enemy. You know, you remember the account in his story where he's 
in the house in chapter 16 with the prostitute and they're waiting for him at night. And what's he do? He goes out and he just lifts up the bars and gates of the city and carries them to the top of a hill some distance away. I mean, that's like, there's not one of us in here. I know some of you guys think you're pretty strong. Right? Some of you think you are. I don't think any single one of us in here could do what we read Samson doing. He just picks it up and carries it. Think about what he's doing. He's taunting the enemy. He's taunting them because, you know, walls and gates were a sign of one's security, right? One's protection. And Samson's saying, you think you're secure. I'll show you how secure you are. He takes it and he goes and places it somewhere. Derailment. And, And that all ties into his pride. His entitlement. His lust. There are many... I've just touched on a few things that derail. What about us? What derails us? Listen, let me tell you what derails us. Sin, lust, entitlement, and pride. That too derails us. I'd like to read a few verses of Scripture. Romans chapter 13. Verse 14 and 13 tells us to walk properly, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Let me read another one. First John. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father. It's not of the Father. It's of the world. Colossians chapter 3 says that we are to set our mind not on things here on the earth, but on things above. Our hearts not supposed to be on treasures here, but we are to set our treasures and affections on things in heaven. And I love the verse in John 3, verse 30. John the Baptist says, I must decrease, he must increase. Listen, if we're going to be intentional about not derailing our lives, those verses of scripture are going to come in handy for us. I believe that's why the Bible says that we're to hide his word in our heart that we might not what? sin against him if we don't have the word of God in us this is one of the helpful tools God's given to us to have and to hide in our hearts that we might walk with him let's be sure we're not derailing our lives we know what God's given to us in his word in terms of defining the terms so we have definition we have derailment Definition and derailment. And I lost my pencil. How do you like that? Oh, there it is. Let me give you one more, and we're going to be done. Definition, derailment. Desperation. Definition, derailment. Desperation. 
desperation. Here's the question I want to ask. Having been derailed, is recovery possible? Having fallen off the track, oh, let me put a side note there, by your own foolish decisions. Having fallen off the track, is recovery possible? And I want to say a resounding yes from what God's word says. As we look at the life of Samson, we see that Samson's life, he, he ends by crying out to the Lord. You remember the story. Sin finds him out. The Philistines capture him. They pluck out his eyeballs. That's also a part of the story that some of the young ones like, especially the boys. But it's not funny in reality. Because you see, he was toying with and playing with fire. We need to understand something. It might be, it might seem to be, and for Samson it was, it was deemed to be kind of a joke, a a fun thing, because he thought he was strong enough to take care of it. See, that's what pride does. I can handle it. I can handle it. I can take care of this. And then one day it all comes crashing down. You know, it's interesting that some of us in our own lives, we, we handle that the same way. I can handle it. I can handle it. I can do this. I'm not getting caught. No one's finding out. And then there's going to come a day when it all comes crashing down. Samson, at the end of his life, is grinding in a prison, being mocked, abused. He's the one who's held up now in Philistine territory as the one who has the enemy who has been defeated, their God, Dagon. They're praising and sacrificing to Dagon. He has finally allowed us, the Philistines say, to capture our enemy. And Samson is found in the last chapter in 16, crying out to his God. They have Samson come out that he might perform for us. Listen, it doesn't get any lower than where Samson is right here. Samson asked the little boy if he could feel the pillars to support the temple so he could lean on them. Notice who's present. The temple's full of men and women, the lords of the Philistines, uh, perhaps five. There are five major Philistine cities. Five, the, the lords of the Philistines were all present. Some two to 3,000 watching on the roof, watching Samson, celebrating this. Oh, they're having a great old time making merry. And Samson calls out to the Lord. He cries out and he says, Oh, Lord God, remember me, I pray. The bottom had dropped out in Samson's life. And what's he doing as we get to the conclusion of his life? He's crying out to God. We don't see the mark of bitterness. We don't see a mark of blaming God. He's crying out to God for help. Just once, I pray, he says, just this once. That I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines. What's his mission? What's his purpose that God set him apart for? To begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. At the bottom barrel of life, Samson is found turning to the Lord. With his hands on those pillars, his last words recorded in the scripture here for us, let me die with the Philistines. Let me die with the Philistines. 
we ask the question of Samson, is recovery possible? I'd like to end with this. As we think about desperation, Samson was desperate, friends. Recovery is also possible for you this morning. As we think about the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is the wonderful good news message of the gospel. Recovery is possible for you as well. No matter where you've been, no matter what's going on in your life up to this point, you're hearing God's word this morning, and I want you to know that recovery is possible. I would ask you the question, are you desperate for God to intervene in your life? Are you desperate? The Bible tells us and lays out for us three things. Repent of our sin. Turn to God in faith and do works befitting a repentant life. That comes from Acts 26. That's Paul's card that he carried with him all around the Mediterranean. It's not anything new. I didn't make it up. It's from the Bible. And know that as we are desperate for him and as we cry out to him, as we return to him, the pillars will fall down. As we bring these things to God in prayer, the pillars will fall down. Listen, someone said, as I was reading this week, someone said that it's, it's relatively easy to die once, which Samson did. What's much more difficult is to die daily. We have been called to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice daily. Not a one-time deal. Daily. And this morning you might find yourself like Samson crying out, desiring to cry out just once more. Give me one more chance. One more opportunity. I want to make good on this opportunity. And you know what? We serve a merciful God. He's merciful. He's already paid for our sins. Past, present, future. He's paid for them at the cross through his son Jesus Christ. Paid in full. So instead of, as we think back to the derailment, and we want to recover, we think about being desperate for God. What does that equate to? What's that look like? We talked about what lust is. I want it. Instead of, I want it, let's replace I want it with I want God. Every time you come to a point in your life and you are being right now sucked into, drawn to this thing in your life, this person in your life, this connection that's not godly, that's not going to help you be holy as God's holy. Instead of, I want it, I want God right now. Replace that with God. As you think about entitlement and you think about, I deserve it. I want you to replace the it, and I want you to say, I deserve death. Extreme? Absolutely extreme. But let's understand, we're in a war. The wages of sin is what? Death. What we all deserve because of our sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I deserve death, but praise God, he's given me everlasting life. It, it just demolishes this entitlement factor I don't deserve anything and when we think about pride I can handle it I can handle it we can translate that to I can handle nothing on my own Jesus says apart from me you can do nothing nothing 
Nothing of spiritual value. Nothing of spiritual significance. I can do nothing. And that's the good news of the gospel. You might be derailed, but because we serve a God who is merciful and loving and faithful always, even when we're not faithful to him, that door is open. Definition, derailment, desperation. Three words tell Samson's story. Three words tell our story. Three words convey God's story and show our place as set apart in Him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have given to us definition of what it is to be set apart unto you. We know that being set apart unto you, uh, that that happens and, and occurs through Christ alone. And so, Father, we thank you for your son, for sending your son, Jesus. Thank you for calling us to be one of your own. We thank you for calling us to such a high bar of living. Be holy, you've said, because you're holy. Lord, I pray we walk away from here today with a grasp on that, that we would pursue holy living. And Father, we've also talked about and seen in the life of Samson how easily one's life can be derailed. It can go a different direction. And we see in his life these three Areas of lust and entitlement and pride. And we see those three areas perhaps in our own lives this morning. There are so many ways we can get derailed in this life. We can get distracted from the things of the Lord. I pray, Lord, you would help us through your Holy Spirit to stay focused on what you want and desire for us. Samson was to begin the deliverance of Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Lord, I pray we would know why we're here. We're here to give you glory, and we're here to give you honor with our lives. May we not be derailed from that purpose and mission. Father, it came to a point in Samson's life where he was desperate. He hit the, he hit the rock bottom low. And in his desperation, he cries out to you in prayer. Lord, you've you've done this very same thing with us. You've told us in your word that you will never leave us nor forsake us. And Father, I pray that as we leave here today, there would be a sense of desperation in our own lives for you. You are the only one that can pull us out of the ditch. You're the only one that can rescue us from this derailment kind of living. So Father, we cry out to you and ask you to help us And we do that, Lord, repenting of our sin, turning to you in faith, and then desiring, Lord, to live a life that looks like a life of repentance, that befits a life of one who's walking in repentance. May that be our lives, Lord. Thank you for those three words. We thank you for the gospel and the good news message of Jesus Christ that makes our set-apart life possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.